the facade just cracked open and now I had a willing agent who was willing to risk his life to try to get the information we needed. That's Michelle Rigby Assad, author, speaker, and former international spy on this episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. This is Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi. We're coming at you with, uh, hopefully, what you will find to be a fantastic episode to ignite your faith, to put it to work, and to bring your bold idea to life. But before we begin, because we got we have a terrific show, right, Armin? That's right. <laughs> we do. Before we begin, we want to just say... Thank you to the people in this past year that have donated to the Bold Idea Podcast. Your gifts, especially at the end of the year, were just greatly received. And as you know, this is, Armin, this is a passion project for us, right? Neither of us get paid for doing this, and there's some considerable costs to put this out every week. But we just so thank you for those of you who have given to the show, and especially the encouragement, too, that we've received from those of you that have commented or sent us emails, we so greatly appreciate receiving that and hearing how the podcast has touched your lives. And if you've been inspired by that as well, we would invite you to let us know by visiting our show page or by donating at boldideapodcast.com. A simple donation can go a long way, and we're so greatly appreciative. Well, let's get on to today's guest, Armin, because we have really a terrific episode in store. Yeah, holy cow, rock star. Today on our program, we have Michelle Rigby Assad. She spent a decade working for the CIA as a counterterrorism undercover intelligence officer. She worked in Iraq as well as other secret Middle East locations she can't disclose. She lived in six Near East countries and traveled to more than 45 others. She was featured on ABC's 2020 special, Escaping ISIS, about a mission to rescue persecuted Iraqi Christians from the threat of ISIS. She's a speaker, a trainer, a consultant on international security, and she's author of the upcoming book, Breaking Cover, My Secret Life in the CIA, and what it taught me about what's worth fighting for. Welcome to the Bold Idea Podcast, Michelle Rigby Assad. Thank you so much, Larry. We're so excited to have you on board because I got to tell you, reading your book, Michelle, uh, first of all, it's very intriguing. And I, I, as I read it, I have a sign, by the way, on my wall that says, live courageously. And as I read that book, I'm just sitting here going, boy, have, I do not have a clue <laughs> about what that's like. <laughs> because here's a woman who, who you know, I got to tell you, that's, that's a very courageous thing you did. You spent a decade working for the CIA as a counterterrorism undercover intelligence officer. How did a girl who was the uh, you know, cheerleader in high school, the prom queen, a Southern girl from California, uh, California, Southern girl from Florida, end up becoming a counterterrorism spy. Well, I never, ever imagined myself doing such a thing growing up. And if you would have told me back then when I was like 17 or 18, I would have thought you were lying to me if you'd said that this is the path my life would take. And um, in fact, that path was incredibly difficult and fraught with um, rejection and uncertainty. And I really had no idea where God was taking me. So it, it was quite a surprise to me as well, Larry and Armin. 
Well, all right. So give us the first inkling here. You came out of you came out of high school and you 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 decided you you had some interest in the Middle East. Is that right? Yeah. So I basically kind of developed a passion for um, international things by looking at National Geographic magazine. And then also when I would hear missionaries come to my church and talk about what life was like abroad and ministry, it just um, really stirred something deep within my soul. But yet I knew I wasn't called to traditional ministry. I don't know how. I knew that I just I just felt it internally. Um, and so I really... Um, was I took advantage of every opportunity starting right after high school to get abroad. And so my first experience abroad was a mission trip to Egypt to work in an orphanage for a month. And so that's where my passion for the Middle East started. Yeah, you know, uh, you said National Geographic. You know, I had an interest in that as I was a kid too, but it was never... <laughs> And never for the missionary stuff. So <laughs> we won't go there any further. <laughs> so you got this passion then for you, you, you went to Egypt and, and how did that become kind of inflamed for you? You, you went and studied uh, Arabic languages. Is that right? Yeah, it was a study. Um, so as an undergraduate, I later went back to Egypt for a semester. And during that semester, we learned about politics and culture and religion and kind of got a really good introduction to the Middle East. And so for me, what was most interesting about that was that these these people and this culture was so different than anything I'd ever been exposed to. And I just had this passion to like understand them. Where are they coming from and why do they think the things they do? Why do they do the things they do? And so it probably became because there was, I realized how little I knew and I just wanted to learn more. So yeah. as a Middle Eastern, I'm curious what fascinated you about them. Oh, everything, everything. And so the first thing would be that um, when I met my future husband in high school, he was a Christian from Egypt. And I, this is embarrassing to say, but I actually didn't even realize Egypt was a country, like a real <laughs> modern country. This is how little I knew. Um, and then to hear that there were Christians in this part of the world was shocking to me. And so um, I realized again how much I didn't understand about you know, the history and culture of that part of the world. And so uh, the, these ideas, he talked about being a persecuted Christian and he told his life stories. And I'm like, so why do people persecute others? What is it in, in Islam that would um, drive people to do this? And so that's probably what started those those questions. So you had this compelling curiosity as a kid. Where did you pick that up from? I, I noticed in your book, you wrote about this, what you're just describing, that you wanted to unlock the mysteries of human behavior. Now, I don't know if that's a natural thing most kids grow up <laughs> wanting to know how to do. So where right. did you get that from? Isn't that strange? I know. I I think I was born with it. Yeah. Mm. I have no other explanation. I was just absolutely, and I remember this from a very young age, being intensely curious about why people acted the way they did. I mean, even in elementary school, I was like this. And so I must have been born with it. Yeah. Hardwired to be a spy. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> All right. So take us from your, uh, your learning about uh, Egypt and discovering that it was a country into applying for the CIA. How did that come about? So I dedicated my life very early on to God. Um, I've loved him for as long as I can remember. And, and I didn't put any conditions on, on that. And so I really said, Lord, wherever you want me, I'll go. And um I wasn't really sure where that was. And he did not make it clear to me 
for a very long time. But so what I started doing was just following this deep-seated passion inside. So that would take me you know, to Egypt for a semester. And then it would take me on other mission trips to Russia and Ukraine. And it eventually took me into Georgetown to get an, a master's degree in Arab studies. And then from there, um, I got recruited by the CIA out of, out of Georgetown. You describe in your book, Michelle, that it was a long process in getting into the CIA. Uh, you, got, you got accepted only to be rejected quickly, again, with a very curt... Uh, sorry, you don't fit our requirements anymore, if, if I remember right. That's correct. So um, again, here I was in, you know, going through a master's program and Arab studies and my family was like, Michelle, what in the world can you do with an Arab studies degree? <laughs> I mean, it, sound, it, it sounded like the strangest thing and I, I had absolutely no idea. I mean, I knew what one could do with it, government type jobs, but what would I w- do with it? I, I didn't know. And so um, I basically... Uh, applied to every single job opportunity available to me at Georgetown. And the CIA came and did this informational session and I went and listened to it and I thought, well, that couldn't possibly be me, but I'm throwing my resume in every single pile. And so I did. And so I ended up going through a process. um, The CIA called me back three weeks later and I was absolutely shocked and said they were interested in me for an analyst position. So I went through this very long, probably six month process of background investigations and polygraphs and drug testing and um, psych interviews and all of these things. And I, I ran through this gauntlet and um, I was told, congratulations, you're gonna you know, work as an analyst at the CIA. And then just a few weeks before I was supposed to start that job after I graduated Georgetown, I got a rejection letter in the mail from the CIA saying, you no longer meet our requirements for this position. <laughs> what? What is that yeah, about? I, How do you get accepted and rejected at the same time? Great question. I had no idea. And I mean, I literally fell like a sack of potatoes on the floor, just crying in shock and awe. Like, what do I do now? What did I do wrong? And I had no you'll idea. never know because it's buried in the secret archives of the CIA now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so, you know, here I am now in my early 20s and I'm thinking, Lord, I've given you my entire life. I've trusted you with every single detail. You um, got me into Georgetown, which was a big deal. And and now I lose this job, which I thought you'd open the store. And where do I go now? And I really felt like one of the biggest rejects in Washington, D.C. Like all my friends were getting these um, cush positions and these really important jobs on the Hill. And here I was, like I couldn't even get a, a basic job. Like I couldn't even get a secretarial job for a while or an admin job. And so I was really overwhelmed by the feelings of uncertainty and really like what God, where are you taking me? So what got you through that to actually finally starting with the CIA? Yeah, it was like putting one step in front of the other. I finally got like a temp job just to pay the bills. And then, um, you know, just kept praying and thinking, okay, Lord, I'm still not hearing your voice. I still have no direction. It was silence for a long time. So, but I'd never got angry with God. I never, I never did. I was frustrated, but I wasn't angry. And then and a f- several months later, a friend we were having dinner with said, 
guys, I got to tell you, I've just applied to the CIA. And he knew what I'd just been through, actually. He goes, but this is a different part of the CIA. This is the part that does the actual spying in the field, mm. not the analyst work that you were going to get hired for. And like, this is, this is the place we should all be. And I was looking at him like, are you crazy? <laughs> like me? Spy? No way. My husband was all over it though. He was like, oh yeah, that sounds awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Typical guy. (laughs) Right? And so the two of them, so Joseph went ahead and started the application process, but I had been told by the CIA, you can reapply for other jobs, but you have to wait for a year. So I waited for a while just to see what happened with Joseph's application. And plus, I, I at that point thought maybe I'd done something wrong, you know, that had jeopardized my employment. So I really didn't know where I stood with the CIA. Wow. So uh, you applied after a while and what, what happened then? So yeah, um, when Joseph was being interviewed and the interviewer asked him about his family, he told her about me and she said, oh, you have a spouse who's also a Middle East specialist? And he said, yeah. So she ended up saying, you know, give me her resume. And then I ended up going through that process. And so it was really interesting because I thought, wow, maybe this is where we were supposed to end up all along. Um, What I later learned is if I had been hired as an analyst, I would have spent the majority of my career in Washington, D.C. behind a desk. (laughs) Once you're in the CIA and the analyst side of the house, you can't change and go to the operation side of the house. Mm. So had I actually gotten in there, I could have never done what God had really called me into, which was the operations part of it, where we would be on the front lines of the war on terror. And um, so as Joseph was starting his training and I was being told that I was in the queue for the next class of trainees, you know, we, we were, were sitting here thinking, okay, I guess this is where God wants us. How interesting that we landed here. And then the planes hit the World Trade Center. You know, and here we had the largest, biggest, most significant attack, terrorist attack on the United States. And we knew in that moment in time that God had placed us exactly where he wanted us. We were pre-positioned to as Arab specialists to be a part of you know, the war on terror. And we had no idea that that was around the corner and about to occur. You know, at that time, that was a big awakening in America for a lot of people wanting to know what is going on in the Arab world? What are these people about? Why would they hate us? You know, that sort of thing. There was this sudden wake up call, I think, in America at that time. Yeah, prior to that, nobody really knew anything about Islam or Muslims. I mean, that wasn't part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So what... So you went through a pretty rigorous training. You described in your book, I was fascinated by some of the stories of the things they put you through to train you as an operative. But I'm kind of curious, what was that first assignment like for you? How did you, how how did you feel about yourself doing that, that first assignment? So the, the training piece specifically? No, uh, no, your first deployment. Oh, the first, first deployment. Okay. Oh my goodness. So here you go through training, but it's, it's all in a sterile environment. And next thing you know, Joseph and I are getting shipped off to a country, um, which I can't specify, but suffice it to say it was in one of the kidnapping and carjacking capitals of the world. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, so I've been in a lot of countries in the Middle East, but this 
I've never done anything like this. I don't even know if I'm capable of living in this country. I don't know if I'm capable of actually doing this job. So I have had a great deal of intimidation. Okay, so I got through the CIA's training, but can I really do the job of an intelligence officer in a very dangerous place? I had no idea. So when you got there and you started the assignment, what did that feel like? What what was going through your mind after you started and there was no backing out now? (laughs) Well, that was really hard because, you know, at this point you've, you've sold your home, you've sold your car, you've given away half your possessions, you've stored the other half, you've moved to the edge of the, what feels like the edge of the earth. And, um, and so it's scary. And, you know, people who look at my, resume in my bio, they are very impressed. Like, oh my gosh, you've been to 50 countries and you've lived in six six countries in the Arab world and you just, you're so courageous. And I said, there was nothing that I went into that I felt capable of doing or that I didn't go into without a great amount of fear and trepidation. I was never certain I could do the job, but when the doors opened to me, I faithfully walked through them and I just had to trust God with my life and my well-being. That's so rich. Now you went with your husband, obviously, into this, uh, into some of the most, probably most terrifying situations. I'm just wondering, how did that affect your marriage? Well, it was great in the sense that, you know, we had each other to rely on. And for those people who had spouses outside of the clandestine service, of course, they're a part of what you're doing because they're part of keeping your cover and keeping up the facade. But there's so much that they don't know about, of course, all of the cases and the details of the things you're handling. But when your spouse is in it right next to you, beside you, and they're doing your counter surveillance for your operations, they're helping you prepare for your asset meetings. I mean, imagine you couldn't know each other any better than when you're doing all of that together. So it really, in the beginning of our relationship really enriched it. And um, I mean, I trusted him like I trusted no one else and vice versa. But towards the end of our 10-year career, I have to say, it got exhausting and it did take a toll on our marriage, all of the stress of that 10 years. Yeah, I imagine just living with that all the time, always being constantly vigilant. One of the things as I was reading your book that I was um, I was just thinking about even for myself is how you had to set yourself up in this constant vigilant state of affairs where you were even trained this way, right, as an operative to always be on the lookout for somebody that might be just around the corner or scoping you out or you always had to be careful about when you got in your car or how you parked or where you walked or where you went. Um, This constant state of high alert had to be taxing. It takes an enormous toll on you because it takes so much um, physical and mental energy and um, I mean, that was the case because we were living in really dicey places. And so we had no option. I mean, we had to be on our guard. We had to know when we were most vulnerable so we could be, you know, take extra precautions, you know, when we left the house or we left work to go home or when we were driving certain places in our car. And so, yeah, that is exhausting because you're always looking for the RPG that somebody might (laughs) shoot at you or somebody standing around on a rooftop with an AK-47 that might, you know, so these are the things we're looking for every day as we're driving to and from work. Was there a time when, when you and he felt like, ah, we can just now finally relax because we're in a safe place? 
Uh, probably not. Never. Not unless we came home to the United States. When could we really feel like we could drop our guard? Yeah. And even then, did you find that being trained to, well, as you described it, be uh, this walking contradiction as the CIA is looking for those who can be honest but can lie, those who can keep secrets but try to get others to tell theirs. Did you ever find that that, that training that you had to, to, to really more or less live a double life, did that create uh, some challenges for you just even in your normal relationships? Right, absolutely. Because um, here we were again in very difficult places. And so you couldn't even really back then um, talk to them very often. We didn't have Skype. We didn't have all of these apps. And and so you were really separated from your friends and family. And then those that you did maintain contact with, you had to be absolutely sure that they could keep your cover and not say something that would out you over the phone or over email that would obviously, um, you know, things that could land you in prison if if the host government realized what you were up to. Was there a time when you feared that your cover had been, had been blown? Thankfully, no. <laughs> that's got to be, that's got to be a tough thing to endure. You know, and that's why you have to go through all that ridiculous training so that every operation, every step that you take, you've done, and you've tried to think through all the potential things that could go wrong and plan for them. And of course, there's always things that happen that you can't prepare for, but that's why it's hard for them to hire for the CIA. They have to hire people who are able to make decisions on the fly under extreme levels of stress. And so um, you had to be really flexible and real and um, keep your calm under a great deal of pressure. Did you guys ever engage with any of the people that you guys were actually spying on? Um, so that that's kind of complicated in the sense that so as counterterrorism officers, our job was to try to develop sources that would give us the information we needed to stop attacks from occurring. So they would give us information, say, the, we most of them were penetrations of terrorist groups. So these were members of those groups who basically threw their arms up and said, okay, I'll work with the CIA against these other guys, which for them is also very scary and they're putting their life in your hands. Um, and so, yes, of course, you're gathering all this uh, secret information about these terrorists running around the streets of Baghdad um, who don't know that you're after them. So, yeah, it's very strange. Mm. Did you lose any of your, um, I don't know what to call them, but your sources, sources yeah. Yeah, we, we did. And, and that was a, an incredibly difficult thing to experience, um, you know, and they knew they were playing a dangerous game by being terrorists in the first place. And they knew the risk that was attached to working with the CIA as well. I mean, they were even clearer about it than we were. And so, but of course it was our job to do everything we could to protect the identity of those sources and protect their information and not let things leak that would jeopardize their lives. So when things did happen to our sources, it was pretty soul crushing. Yeah. So what's your most fulfilling memory that you have from the roles that you played and what's your biggest regret? Oh, most fulfilling. Well, you know what was amazing? Of all of the the places that I served, I am allowed to talk about the year that we spent in Baghdad at the height of the war there. And the thing that was so fascinating about um, that particular time period 
was that we were able to see every single day the results of our work, which so many of us, I don't care which um, industry you're in, you we rarely ever get feedback on whether you're doing a good job or not. And in Baghdad, we would get calls from the military who said that intelligence report you sent out about the location of the car bomb, we found the car, there was a bomb in it and we disabled it. And they were just about to launch that attack in the mm. next few days. Or And this happened like almost on a hourly, definitely a daily basis wow. where the, the military would say, oh. thank you so much. That definitely just saved lives. Wow. That has to be gratifying. It, extremely. And, and you needed that because I always tell people I could not have worked any harder than I did in Baghdad. It was, I mean, the hours were just horrible. I mean, we were working 12, 13, 14 hours a day. It was relentless. And the amount that of the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual exhaustion was off the charts. So getting that kind of feedback was what we needed to keep going in a place that just, you know, there was no reprieve from the stress. Yeah. Now, if you had to do it all over again, would you have done anything differently? No, no, I would have, I would have done it all again because it really, um, God used those situations to develop my skill set and to give me what I needed to have an impact in the world. And so while it was incredibly difficult and I mean, I'm telling you, there were times, there were many times we wanted to quit and walk away from it. Um, it's where God wanted us to be. And there's no place I want to be in, in doing God's will, wherever that is. Okay, this is a childish question, but I'm kind of a child. <laughs> um, did you guys have to deal with double spies or catch any double spies? Or is that stuff real or is that too many Jason <laughs> Separate Bourne Separate 007 from reality here. <laughs> yeah. It's very real. And that's like my most favorite thing in the world to do. I bet nobody's ever told you that before. No, <laughs> we can safely say that that's true. <laughs> or oh not, gosh, depending on who I you believe. I love that. I mean, that's like my, that's like my thing. Um, just because I, ha I'm, I have such an insatiable hunger to understand and, um, and to keep understanding the sources and the reporting. And so I was able to develop the kind of expertise needed to identify when, when something went off the rails. I can say, you know what, something is wrong here. I don't know what's going on, but we got to figure it out. This guy could be a double agent. And so, oh my gosh, I loved being, and obviously that was super gratifying when I could point <laughs> something out and say, there's a problem here and then do something about it. How much of a trust issue does that create? I mean, that's got to make you somewhat paranoid around people. Oh, oh yeah. Well, my husband, and I used to say like, okay, so you're going to go meet your source today. You're going to pick him up, put him in your car. You're going to do a pat down, make sure he's not wearing a suicide belt. Yes, I am. I mean, these are the things wow. that Joseph and I discussed with each other to prepare for our days. Uh, normal, because you, you normal can never let your, your guard down with these guys. <laughs> so he's your source. He said he's committed to you, but that means nothing at the end of the mm -hmm. day. He's still a terrorist that can't be trusted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's not overwhelming at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. So you. So when you came back from the field, actually, it's been a little. It's been a little while. It's been five or six years now since you've been back. Is that right? Yeah, it's been five years. Okay. Yep. So what would you say? You know, looking back over those years when you were there, what would you say are some of the the things that you learned about yourself through all of that? Yeah, so I mean, the the first major thing was that um, 
I learned how good I was as an intelligence officer. And that might sound silly, but when I first walked into the CIA, I was super intimidated and didn't know how I quite got hired there because I didn't feel up for the job. It's not like, oh, sure, I know I have this baseline in my life of knowledge of whether I can do this. I mean, who knows if they can identify surveillance and and meet with sources and not get anybody killed. I mean, come on. Um, So I was very intimidated. And also I had looked around and I had seen that people in senior level positions were very different than I was very different personalities, very different ways of interacting with the world. And so I looked at them and I said, I have nothing in common with these people, but they've gotten to these senior level positions. So that must be what it takes to get along in the CIA to do this job. And so for the longest time, for years and years, I self-flagellated about, I'm too friendly. I'm too nice. I need to like calm it down. I'm, I care too much about people. I need to dial that down. You know, I was, I was into like helping my colleagues, not trying to undermine them, which happened a lot, unfortunately in the CIA. And so, um, I basically went into thinking that I was subpar, which was hard for me because growing up, I was always the person that you know wanted to do a really good job. I wanted to win, I wanted to exceed, and here I am thinking, you know, praying that I could be subpar, which felt so wrong. And then once I got to Baghdad, and was able to then realize that I had a talent at dealing with people very, very different than myself. I had an aha moment where I realized when I allowed myself to be authentically Michelle with the full personality God had given me, it enabled me to do my job on a level that was pretty amazing. And out of reach for many of the people that you were comparing yourself to, right? Yes. It took me a long time to realize that. But when I did, I was like, oh my gosh, what a lesson. Well, I have to ask you this question because um, I would have no other frame of reference to ask it, but what was it like being a woman doing what you were doing in the Middle East? Yeah, and and I would add to that because that's both a CIA thing, a woman in the CIA, and then being a woman in the Middle yeah, East. Yeah, there you go. Yes, exactly. Oh yeah, it was incredibly challenging, and so those I knew when I was about to walk into the debriefing room in Baghdad when I was dealing with these terrorists for the first time, I knew what I was up against because I had spent so much of my time studying the Middle East. So I know I'm about to meet with a guy whose radical ideology tells him that women shouldn't leave the home, women shouldn't work. If they do leave the home, they need to leave with a male guardian and they need to be covered from head to toe. And so, you know, I might as well have been growing two horns out of my head (laughs) (laughs) as far as they were concerned. You probably were. So so you're right. (laughs) And so as far as they were concerned, how in the world could I know anything about the Middle East the Arab world, Arabic, how could I pose as a CIA officer to them? It just was mind boggling for them. And so I knew that immediately I had to address these issues or I could not get down to business. And I had to come up with a strategy in my head to just confront these assumptions head on in that debrief, like in the first five minutes or so, so I could get him past that and I could get him to dealing with me as a normal, regular human being who was very capable and very intelligent. How would you do that? I'm, I'm just deathly curious <laughs> on, in five minutes. I mean, you want to know if it's being done to you, right, Armin? <laughs> well, I, I, I think I've tried with certain people for decades and I haven't won the end. So I'm trying to figure out how you do it in five minutes. Well, so um, so what I would do is I would 
walk in the room, I would be very, I'd hold myself very confidently. I'd walk in, I'd give them a firm handshake. They would always try to hold on to my hands to try to caress it and just touch <laughs> me as long as possible. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. That's deep, so bad. That's terrible. Deeply uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Um, nothing like getting hit on by a terrorist. And, um, <laughs> I feel so bad laughing. I'm sorry. So wrong. No, I know. And you know, I knew there's no, I, I couldn't do anything about it. Like, I can't help that that's what this guy is thinking right now, but I've got to get his head out of the gutter. This is my mission. And so I would, you know, very gracefully withdraw my hand and then I would just go right in. And I'd be like, so Abba Muhammad, I'm so happy to meet you today. And I would start stroking his ego immediately about the amazing work that he had done with the CIA. I mean, all of it being authentic, but being very straightforward, like you've risked your life. This is very impressive. I love what you did the other day. Give him very good examples. And so I would address him personally. Then I had to show him I knew about Iraq and the sectarian issues and counterterrorism world. So I very strategically would say, oh my gosh, Muhammad, what happened in your village or your part of Baghdad last week? You know, and I would talk about the sectarian clashes and how it was affecting society. And I could see as I was saying these things, like it was not registering, like what? Mm. What? She's smart. She knows what's going on. And so I, and then... I would use certain Arabic phrases to indicate that I really knew Arabic, not just silly words, but really deep, you know, phrases. And Say something, show off. <laughs> I want to hear this. Ahalan wa sahalan. Salamu alaikum ya ustaz kifik. Alhamdulillah ana tasharafna. Wow, you nailed that. It's better than my Arabic. Well, what'd she say, Arnie? <laughs> <laughs> now you get to do the translation. Because the, the Bible words. says if there's tongues, you need an interpreter. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> I, I, I think in the end I heard, uh, how are you? You said Catholic, yes. right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, very good. <laughs> you know, and so I would I would have to say something about him. I'd have to say something about Iraq. I'd have to use certain kinds of Arabic. And so and then I kept this this conversation moving forward in a very positive manner so he couldn't go back to thinking about flirting with me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I had to, you know, give him very direct eye contact, but then pull my eyes away at certain times because I mean I I mean, you know, eye contact in that part of the world. It's everything. Yeah. I mean, it's everything here, but it's even more there. Yeah. And then, you know, I had to sit close, but not too close, or he'd think I was flirting. And so I had <laughs> to just really watch every bit of my nonverbal behavior with this guy. And then about five minutes in, I could just feel the atmosphere in the room completely change as he decided that he liked me, he really liked me, and he was really going to work with me. And it was like everything like, the facade just cracked open and now I had a willing agent who was willing to risk his life to do what I, you know, to try to get the information we needed. Wow. And so that, that breakthrough for me was such like a high, like I can't help what this guy thinks about when I walk through the door, but I'm going to do everything I can to change it before I walk back out. And when I could do that, it made me feel, you know, like a very effective intelligence officer. Yeah, that's great. And I'm guessing... Uh, that there are probably some advantages as well that you had as a woman that maybe your male counterparts didn't. Correct. I mean, and and so in that moment now, because I was a female, Abu, Abu Muhammad wanted to impress me. 
you know, he still had that going on. And so when I said, you know, do you think you could get the following information? He'd be like, oh yeah, I can get that for you. Oh yeah. And so <laughs> it became my advantage. That's right. You challenge his masculinity. <laughs> do you have yeah. it? Do you have what it takes to get this? <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. And um, the other thing would be, there were so many situations in which, you know, I was completely underestimated and I just left it that way. And so I would attend a meeting and let them think that I was, um, the secretary, and then I would be able to just, you know, come out with all kinds of assessments because they didn't think I knew anything. Mm. Wow, that's so fun. So, is there a big risk that you're coming out with this book? I mean, what what you did out there? I mean, it does it doesn't take a lot for them to get angry enough to try to do something. Yes, of course. Yes, there's a risk. Um, And of course, everything we did in the field was under a a fake name, a fake persona and all that. Um, But there's a risk. And Joseph and I, you know, prayed a great deal about it. You know, should I write this book in true name or should I write it in pseudonym? But I felt very clearly God was calling me to share my story to inspire others and it had to be done in true name. And so just like everything else in our lives, we counted the cost and decided this is what we're called to do. So we're going to do it. And how do you want to inspire others that read your book? I really want them to understand that um, ordinary people can do very extraordinary things when their faith and their faith is greater than their fear and intimidation. That's the bottom line. Mm. That's a great takeaway. Your book is coming out on February the 6th. Yes. How can we, uh, how can our listeners learn about that? Sure. Well, they can go to my website, um, Michelle with one L Rigby Assad. Dot com And it talks about my background and, uh, and you can also get to the book as well. Or you can go on to any of the places you normally buy books, um, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, my publisher, Tyndale, and also audiobook will be available that way as well. Well, that's, uh, we'll have those links in our show notes as well. One last question for you, Michelle, uh, you know, apart from the risk you're taking in releasing this book, what's your next uh, bold idea that you're planning? Um, my bold idea is to basically continue sharing the, my stories as as far and wide as possible. Um, so the idea is just to, to get out there. And I, we all need to hear that we're capable. And when you can use your own personal life stories to show that in ways that are super interesting, you know, like using CIA stories, it can get those points across in really new and interesting ways. And I think because people find me relatable. And I'm just like you. I'm no different. I've done some extraordinary things, but that was because God empowered me and I walked through my fear. And that's what I want to encourage and empower other people to do through through speaking engagements and through um, um, things like these podcasts and, and media, other types of media. That's awesome. Michelle, thanks again for being on the Bold Idea Podcast. Such a treat to uh, to meet you and to talk about your story. And I wish you the best with your book. It's I think it's an amazing book and I recommend our, our listeners uh, pick it up. Thank you, Larry and Armin. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Michelle. Well, Armin, time to break down the life story of Michelle Rigby Assad. That's crazy. That's, I, I've met CIA people before, but... It hasn't really been that interesting. And even the operation work that they did was underwhelming to say the least. But she was the real deal. Like, went out there. She did it. 
Yeah, you know, I think our whole perception of these kind of clandestine operations obviously are shaped by Hollywood, at least those of us in America, not in the service, right? So we have this romanticized view of what that work might really be like. And uh, to hear some of those stories and to read the book, um, you know, in, in many ways they put themselves in harm's way every day, but it's sometimes not in this extraordinary way. It's just by being in (laughs) the wrong place, perhaps at the right time or the wrong time, however you might say that. And, it, you know, it's every day, as we talked about in the interview, living with this high state of vigilance. You just have, you know, just your very presence is a threat. Yeah. I mean, all I kept, have you ever seen the movie Body of Lies? Yes. That's all I kept thinking about is you are, you, you are Leonardo DiCaprio. Well, you're. Your role, yeah. <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio did in that movie, yeah. is what you did. That's all I kept thinking about that whole time, and th- the realism in that movie—it just—it it, kind of sucked you into the emotional exhaustion of what they have to do, or the mental exhaustion of what they have to do. Like there, there is no punching in and out. Even if you're not working, your brain doesn't stop. Yeah, your you don't have no, you have no stop. safe place until yeah. you're back here. Is what she was saying, and it, and and clearly, as she said, it took a toll on her marriage after ten years. I would think so. Yeah. I mean, I would think that that would be just a normal human response. It would take a toll on anybody in any relationship, I would think, if that it being on a high state of alert for such a long period. My of time. marriage took a toll of, after a year of ministry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a high state of alert as well. But, you know, at, at the top of the show, I, I talked about this sign I have on my wall. And I, and I got to tell you, I mean. I'm looking at it. <laughs> you know, just just reading, reading stories like this and listening to Michelle tell her story. I just have. In many ways, I'm glad for what she said because, you know, she said she was wired into it and yeah. she didn't quite say it that way, but that's how I heard it and that God called them into that. And and it just, that was comforting for me because, you know, I'm like that is the farthest thing from a, a you know, what I would choose to do. Mm. And, uh, and, and certainly, you know, we talk about getting outside of our comfort zone. I mean, that's not, that's beyond my comfort zone right. to even, <laughs> to even <laughs> contemplate. And I imagine some of our listeners can identify with that. Some are like, hey, Larry, you you're just a you're just a weenie, but you know I think that's how I feel sometimes about it. But you know what I do really like about what she said is that oftentimes when we are encountering the thing that God would want us to do, we feel like we're incapable to do it to begin with. Yeah, and that that to me that's one of the big takeaways. I mean, the sign for our capability. And think about what Moses said. You know, I'm not able to lead these people. I mean, I I can't even speak straight. You know, I am not a leader to lead these people out of Egypt. And so maybe one of the big signs of of God impressing upon us that there's a bold idea is just this sense that I am not able to do this. Mm. And and I think that might be something that God is saying, that is precisely why I'm wiring you to do it. Because I'm going to show you it's not from from you. Yeah. It was from me. Yeah. And I, I would say the, uh, the thing that really stuck out for me too is uh, where she's talking about the role that she got accepted into uh, in the CIA as an analyst and then to immediately get it rejected and turned down for it, but then to, through a series of events, find an operative role in the CIA. But the way she broke it down of how she would have never been able to get into operations if she got into the other side of the CIA. Yeah. And she never would have known that if, if she didn't get rejected in the first place. And I, I guess what really stood out to me 
is, and I guess it really hits a chord for me, is that sometimes the deepest rejection you might be going through right now might be God's exact way of holding you up for the exact thing that you really want in your life. But even because you can't see it, you've convinced yourself the thing that you were rejected of is the thing you really wanted. But yeah, it's this amazing sight. I am confusing myself saying that, but God just has this amazing ability to know what you want better than you do. But we can't seem to grasp that. Yeah. In describing that situation in her book, the words I wrote down is uh, he, she wrote, God threw me off course to set me back on course. On her real course. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Set, set on the right course that, uh, that he would desire for her. And I, I just thought that that was really, really good. Yeah, I, I think that deserves a sermon. I'm, I'm not going to write it, but I hope she does. <laughs> just that part right there. The other thing in her journey that I really appreciated was really what she came to appreciate and accept about her own giftingness. As soon as she stopped being what other people are like and started embracing the skill set that God put inside of her, the more she was able to put that to her own advantage. And, and I just think about that for ourselves. We often look at other people maybe executing upon the task or the mission that we think God might have for us. Yeah. And we look at how skilled they are in doing it or the approach that they put at it, or maybe even that they're of a different temperament or personality than we are. And we think that we need to be like them in order to succeed like them. Mm. And I love that she came to a different conclusion about that. And, and in many ways, she felt like she had to because, you know, she had very few other options. But she came to this conclusion that, no, God wired me to approach this differently. And I, as soon as I embrace that, then I have my advantage. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's really good. The other thing I'm thinking of here right now is the ripple effect of Michelle's presence in uh, in the Middle East. I, the The fact that she was able to be the BA uh, counterintelligence person that she was and go toe-to-toe with these guys that are blatantly hitting on her while she's <laughs> yeah. trying to have a professional conversation. There's there, And I, I know this co- culture. I've literally been in a cab with my, with my grandmother in Iran where she's used the umbrella that she had with her to start hitting the cab driver because he was being that guy, you mm. know, right, ne- right next to me. So I, I get it. I hate it. I'm disgusted by it most often. But I, I love the fact that she was there because she changed culture and she probably doesn't even know it. But it doesn't take a lot of men to start shifting culture, right? It might be a slow process, but at least the start, the the process has started, mm-hmm. and it, and and I would credit her for a lot of it because I'm assuming she had to work with more than one Middle Eastern guy. Oh yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I would so guess so. She did great. I'm glad she was there, <laughs> <laughs> and glad she's back to tell the story. Yeah, and then just this whole idea of how being in a place can change you in terms of, you know, this whole idea of this high vigilance again, you know, and, yeah, and gosh. it affects everything. It's like, you have to look everywhere for what's going on. And, and, and if we are in a situation, for instance, maybe it's not the middle East, but maybe, you know, your place of terrorism is your workplace. Maybe it's <laughs> toxic. Yeah. And, and you have to be on a high state of alert because you don't know if somebody's trying to take you down. Maybe not your life, but your career. Or maybe it's some other way they're trying to do harm to you. 
the same message still applies. Mm. You have to just say, hey, I'm going to just trust on God that he's got me here for a reason. Mm. I have a mission to fulfill. I'm going to stay vigilant. Mm. I have to stay vigilant. But I'm going to lean on God, and, and as she said, in the, in the field, there were many times they thought about quitting, but they knew that God wanted them to stay there. And so, you know, I think her message, at least for me, is when I find myself in a toxic environment, that not, not necessarily the indication that I'm to leave. Maybe I'm there to make a change. Maybe I'm there to help someone else. Maybe right. I'm there to be the hand for somebody else. Right. That's... As you just as you just described, that's what she did. Right. It, it, she wasn't there to assassinate. She was there, and based on the way she broke it down in those meetings, is she honored them into partnering with them. Yeah, and as she said, in Baghdad every day and sometimes every hour, saving lives because of the work that she was doing. Well, I think that's the inspiration that we can have for ourselves. Maybe you're not going to save a life today. Maybe you will, but who knows? You could inspire somebody else to live their life in a, in a greater way. And so Armin and I just want to encourage you to put your faith to work. Take a, take a lesson from this secret life of a spy, this Michelle, Michelle Rigby Assad and her story. And we hope that you find it inspiring. And if you did, uh, would you leave us a message about that? Would you visit our show notes at boldideapodcast.com slash 53? We'd love for you to leave a comment uh, for Michelle there. Let us know what you thought about the show. And would you also take a moment if you uh, are so inclined, we love it for you to review our show. It really helps us get the word out about the podcast by going to boldideapodcast.com slash review. And there's all the instructions on how to do it. It only takes a few minutes. And so we really appreciate when you take time out to do that for us. So until next week, this is Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi. Saying thank you for being a part of this journey with us. And we'll see you then. You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.